A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Apologies for my absence for the last 10 days. Went out to the country for a while to explore other climes and back. A lot to catch up on, I guess, on the economic, financial and political front. I certainly like to talk today about what the central bank is saying in its latest quarterly economic bulletin about the Irish economy, and more particularly about the advice on the budget that's going to be delivered sometime in early October. And this follows some advice from the left-wing think tank task over the last couple of days. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. We saw two significant interest rate developments last week. In the United States, the Federal Reserve did nothing. And in Europe, the European Central Bank delivered another quarter of 1% of an interest rate increase. And I think what's most important about those two rate decisions Um, is the accompanying narrative um, in terms of what they tell us about the way forward for interest rates. And then I want to talk about stagflation nation. We've got some very, very nasty inflation data out of the UK today, which I think has significant implications for UK interest rates. We also got public debt numbers out of the United Kingdom that have now reached the highest levels since a year before I was born, exactly. So that's interesting. And I think it just feeds into a whole narrative about what's happening in the UK. And I know you have a lot to say about that. And you have said a lot about it in podcasts over the last couple of years. So definitely, um, I think there's a lot to discuss in the context of the UK. If I may start off with the Central Bank of Ireland's latest quarterly economic outlook, and the focus here was an economy that is basically proving more resilient than might have been expected 
in the face of all the global headwinds we're seeing. The central bank believes that our economy is now operating pretty much at full capacity and with an unemployment rate of 3.8%. Um, it's difficult to argue with that. Um, and in that context, the central bank is basically arguing any move above a 5% net spending increase would prove inflationary for the economy and would not be a sensible policy. I've seen that 5% figure kicked around in all sorts of different budget documents, proposals and all, all that kind of stuff. And I have a very basic question to which I should know the answer, Jim. And I'm sorry I don't. Is that 5% real or nominal? I assumed it is nominal. Okay, yeah. It, 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 I can't see it spelled out anymore. I'm sure it is spelled out yeah, somewhere. I, Just... I, I, I assume it's, it's nominal. The central bank interpretation that it's a net spending rule of 5%. So in other words, any discretionary spending decisions or tax cuts cannot add more than 5% to net spending in the economy. I think it's a nominal rate. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And it would, it would only really make sense in terms of giving politicians numbers, to give them nominal numbers in terms of the planning process and in terms of what they can handle inside their own heads. Because the moment you start trying to think about, well, what does a real spending increase limit actually mean in practice in terms of euros, it would get very tricky. But Jim, why do you think that we are worried about Irish inflation? I've said this to you before. Back in the day when we had the punt, remember that one? I sure do. Did you ever worry about Dublin's inflation rate relative to Limerick's inflation rate? No. Right. In a currency union, is it not exactly by analogy the same thing to say that Ireland's inflation rate is as relevant to the eurozone as Limerick's inflation rate was to Cork's inflation rate? And that, therefore, we didn't worry about these things in the past. Why should we worry about them now? We have the euro. The only reason to have worried about relative inflation rates in the past was surely because of the threat of a currency crisis. Why the hell should we worry if Irish inflation is higher than other countries? It's not going to cause anything for the euro, for the, for the currency. It doesn't mean a hill of beans for the Irish balance of payments, which within a currency union doesn't matter anyway. Ultimately, if it sets up competitiveness issues, which I know is going to be part of your answer, yes. um, they're self-correcting because by definition, if the Irish inflation rate has gone up, it means Irish competitiveness goes down. So you have less economic growth going forward than you would otherwise have had. And the inflation rate comes down and corrects itself in the same way that Sligo and Dublin's inflation rates used to correct themselves without anybody ever noticing. You're correct in the sense that as, as part of the European Monetary Union, regional inflation rates, in theory, don't make that much difference. They, cor they correct themselves. But, uh, you know, the point is, Ireland is still a sovereign trading nation. You know, we still sell a lot of goods and services overseas. We still try and attract a lot of foreign direct investment into the country. So if inflation here is running at significantly higher levels, uh, that does cause a problem in terms of competitiveness. And the adjustment to that could be quite painful. Um, so I think you'd be better off preventing that adjustment from having to happen in the first place. I think it would be sensible to have inflation here running at roughly the same rates as across the rest of the monetary union. And there is the issue then about the impact that high inflation has on the domestic 
cost and standard of living here. So, you know, if prices are rising significantly, that does cause problems. And of course, that is self-adjusting as well in the sense that, you know, if living standards have been affected, that will slow economic growth, which in turn will cause that inflation situation to adjust. But wouldn't you be better off preventing that adjustment process from having to happen in the first place than not? I think if you had perfect control of the economy and perfect ability to forecast where things were going, then yes, it is better to have a, an inflation rate that keeps you on the straight and narrow, as it were. But if in a monetary union, you do have an inflation rate that's different in one region of the monetary union compared to the other, and in particular, a very small part of the monetary union, the question I have is, why should we care? We don't have that perfect control and we don't have perfect foresight. I mean, when we come on to talk about the UK, one of the things I'm going to bang on about is that we actually, as a profession, have surprisingly little idea about what actually causes inflation. So when you have a central bank and a competitiveness council and another think tank saying that if you do this, Irish inflation is going to be that, just remember, you and I two years ago were talking about global inflation being temporary or permanent or not as a result of the supply side shock and the then the war and all that kind of stuff. And everybody, virtually everybody, got their inflation forecasts completely wrong. The Bank of England has just spectacularly got their inflation forecasts particularly wrong, spectacularly wrong. Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, has promised to deliver half, uh, inflation coming down by half by the end of the year. Looks like he's going to be spectacularly wrong as well. So when you start talking about if we do this, this will happen to inflation, I think you need to be very, very careful because... A, you may not have the right model of inflation, as so many of us clearly had over the last while, including the world's central banks. And secondly, you may have unintended consequences. And the third point I'd make is, why should I care about, you know, as I say, we never used to care about Sligo versus Limerick inflation. Why should I care about Irish versus French inflation? These things don't matter at the end of the day. And to the extent that they do, they will be self-correcting. So leave well alone. If you actually have a good old wage uh, inflation issue going on in Ireland, that'll cure a lot of your inequality, um, market income inequality that you have, it might actually have some positive consequences. So just enjoy the ride. Yeah, but Chris, tell me if inflation in Dublin is running, you know, at 10%, and if inflation in the rest of the country is running at 5%, I mean, surely that does impact on the mobility of labour, you know, it makes it more difficult to get teachers, guards, nurses, you know, the traditional public servants on, you know, medium salaries to move to that location. Yes. Um, so we, we do, it, I'm not saying it's issue free, but I'm not, I'm not saying are these huge economic problems that you need to do something about in advance? Chris, you, you think about the last time um, Ireland had this sort of overheating problem. If that, well, that's what the central bank believes we're on the cusp of if we do the wrong things now. But the last time we had this overheating problem was in the run-up to 2007, 2008. And we adjusted at that stage. But do you really want to go through that sort of adjustment process? I mean, well, hang on a minute. It was an incredibly painful adjustment. Yes, but that wasn't caused by inflation. No, not CPI inflation, but it was it was caused by a significant loss of competitiveness in the economy. I, don't, I honestly think that the economics profession, as exemplified by the Irish Central Bank, not you, of course, Jim, 
aren't thinking through the logical implications of being in a monetary union. The, the consequences of accepting that we have a very imperfect understanding anyway of the underlying inflationary process in our economies, as evidenced by our failure to get the inflation forecast right in any major economy, including Ireland, over the last few years when it's been such an important issue. So I'll start again by saying, be careful about saying, if you do this, inflation will do that. We haven't got that degree of knowledge, so therefore be a bit a bit more humble. And if you did have Irish inflation coming from extra spending, where do you think it's going to come from? Do you think that all of the big employers in Ireland, all of the big employers are suddenly going to put their wages up by 10%? I'd say no matter what the government spends on, no matter what tax rates the government cuts or raises, there's no way there's going to be generalised 10% wage inflation in Ireland. Because it just can't happen. The, the workforce isn't unionised in this way. All of the multinationals will pay whatever the multinationals have to pay. Where is the pressure for a generalised, sustained, year over year, 10% rise in Irish wages going to come from? It's just not going to happen. Those kinds of economic mechanisms just aren't present in the Irish economy, as far as I can see. The last crisis was caused by house prices collapsing. We haven't got that kind of inflation now. I don't see what problems a little bit of Irish inflation, which would only last a short period of time, would actually cause. Yeah, the, the central bank obviously disagrees with John this, Chris, and the central bank is quite certain about the impact because there is a research paper included in the bulletin uh, looking at the impact of a 6.5% increase in government spending Okay, next year. They say specifically... It would add 0.3% to inflation in 2024 and between 0.3 and 0.4% in 2025 and 2026. Forgive me, Jim, so, that doesn't pass the so what test. It really doesn't. <laughs> it does doesn't. It? No, but I'm Come just on. telling you. I'm telling you what the central bank is saying, okay? And I actually, I actually agree with you, Chris. There's a lot of bullshit being spoken about here in the context of what we should or should not do. One of the interesting points, okay, TASC, the left-wing think tank, and it was a TASC event that Michael D. Higgins was speaking at a few weeks ago when he had the infamous go at the economics profession, and he's had some major faux pas since then, as we know. But anyway, that was it was at a TASC function, and TASC came out with its assessment in the last couple of days, and TASC is basically saying that there should be no cuts in taxation. We shouldn't even index the various bans and allowances for inflation, uh, that it would prove very inflationary. But yet, they're also talking about spending as much money as, as possible on everything else across the economy. So when you, when you look at task and that sort of analysis, it is just so ideologically blind in my view. It is driven by a left-wing ideology that low taxes are bad, high spending is good. I think TASC need to employ and institutes and think tanks and other lobby groups like TASC need to employ much better PR companies, much better PR people. Because if you set yourself up as being the sort of organisation that has never seen a tax rate that they don't want to put up and has certainly never seen a tax rate that they wish to cut, and then year after year after year, you produce a budget submission that says these are all the taxes that we want to see put up. If these are all the taxes that we never, ever want to see cut. And these are all the spending programs that we want to see increase. And you just do the same thing year after year after year, independent of where you are in the economic cycle, independent of the underlying economic conditions. When Ireland 
biggest export was live cattle 50 years ago, Jim. Task's budget submission was exactly the same as this one. I think you need to get some decent PR people into your left wing. around back then. <laughs> into your left. I know, I'm just making this up just to make a point, Jim. I'm, I'm an economist. I'm allowed to exaggerate to make a point. If Tusk had been around, it would be making the same. And it's, it's, I'm not just going to go at this particular one. All these think tanks are the same. They need to think about how they sell their message a wee bit better rather than doing the same thing every year so that the government and whoever else it is that they're trying to, to lobby can simply ignore by saying, oh, well, they always say this, don't they? It's, it's, a, it's a study in ineffectiveness, in my opinion. And, and they need to be, I could, you know, I would certainly like to see a few taxes cut. But if, if you employed me as task PR consultants to make the case for higher taxes, I'm sure I could do an awful lot better. We could do an awful lot better than they could. I'm not volunteering our services, Jim. I'm not even offering our services for paid for commission. I'm just saying, do you not think that we could, we could make a better case? Whatever chance there is of task employing you, there's absolutely zero task, zero chance they would employ me, I can tell you. Uh, the, the central bank, another piece of the analysis I found interesting was that tax cuts of the same magnitude would be less inflationary as spending cuts, okay? So in, in, in other words, they feel that if you, say, cut taxes by $2 billion or increase spending by $2 billion, the tax change would be less inflationary than the spending increase. That is because some of the tax cuts would end up being saved, okay? Whereas the expenditure cuts would typically be directed at people who have a very high marginal propensity to consume, a very low marginal propensity to save. So all of this money would find its way into the economy. That kind of flies in the face a little bit of what Task is saying as well. And I, I just go back to the point... I don't know why I actually end up reading stuff that is produced by bodies that are so ideologically twisted. Jim, it's important not to stay in your own bubble. You've got to hear what the opposition are saying or what different people with different ideas are saying. It's very important. So I admire you for having the time on your hands to read this kind of stuff. <laughs> Chris, one final point I think that might be of interest to some of our listeners, particularly those who employ people. The central bank is forecasting wage growth of 6% in the economy this year, up from 4.3%. Bring last it on, year. I say. Bring it on. That's great. On. Yeah. I think that for, for the a lot of the, not all of them, but some of the problems, economic problems that Ireland has, the low wage sectors and all that kind of stuff, seeing a bit of decent wage inflation is by definition a, a, a good thing um, from an inequality point of view, from a social cohesion point of view. It's the sort of thing that uh, Tusk, I would have thought, would have welcomed. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chris, one other thing, I suppose, before I move away from Ireland, um, and it's, it's related to the inflation story as well. If you remember a few weeks back, um, a junior minister in the Irish government, Neil Richmond, who is a guy I really like, have a lot of respect for, but he um, called out the retailers to cut prices of groceries, basically food. He met him and asked him to do it. And I, I think they effectively ignored him. But market forces have caused some cuts in food prices then. But anyway, that's what Neil Richmond was saying a few weeks back. The CCPC, which is the the new name for the old competition authority here, they have said that there is no evidence of price gouging in the retail grocery sector. So in other words, they're sort of saying that what Neil Richmond has been calling for just doesn't stand up. Okay, and and I totally agree with that view of the world because there is intense competition in the retail grocery sector. There is no doubt about that. Um, Ten years ago, the two discounters, Aldi and Lidl, had roughly 5% of the retail grocery market today. They have around 25%. And of course, what Aldi and Lidl have driven over that 10-year period is intense competition in the retail grocery sector. And, you know, we've seen um, actually declining average food prices up until quite recently. So that's one thing. You know, there is intense competition. And the suggestion that some retailers are engaging in price gouging at a general level, I just don't buy my understanding of what's happening in the retail grocery sector at the moment is that uh, obviously the increases in the price of food being sold is reflecting much higher production costs for the primary producers here, higher import prices uh, because of what's happening in food production globally. And also, of course, for the retailers themselves, for the processors in the middle of the food chain, and indeed for the farmers who produce the food here, all of their input costs have increased significantly as well. So as sure as night follows day, those sorts of pressures were going to result in higher food price inflation. It's running at just over 12% in Ireland at the moment, but the latest data from the UK today shows that food price inflation there is running at 18.3%. So we should thank our lucky stars that on top of everything else, we don't have to deal with the debacle that Brexit has proved for... Well, I do. I don't know what this we business is, Kimozabi. I'm sitting and you're, here... You're in Cardiff. You're in a bubble, Chris, OK? Uh, thank you very much. Um, is that a nice segue into what's been going on in the UK recently? Uh, before we get there, just want to talk a little bit about interest rates. The Federal Reserve left rates unchanged last week, the first pause, and basically said that they're now in wait-and-see mode They will see how labor market developments, financial market developments um, and the overall health of the economy evolve over the coming weeks before they make another decision on rates. Um, It's certainly not clear that the U.S. rate cycle has peaked yet. The European Central Bank delivered a quarter percent increase last week, and that takes the refinancing rate, which is the rate I like to talk about because that's the one that tracker mortgages are priced off of. Uh, That's now up at 4%, up from zero in July of last year. Um, And a listener on our Substack 
made the point that we keep talking about mortgage rates, but what about other borrowing costs in the economy, particularly for small businesses? And I take that on board absolutely fully. You know, higher interest rates, it's not all about mortgages. It's also about the cost of lending for business. So whatever way you look at it, you know, there's been a pretty dramatic increase. But I, I think the key point of interest here is what Christine Lagarde said at the press conference afterwards. And she's basically saying that the ECB is still concerned about the tightness of labour markets, the resilience of economic activity, the persistence of inflation, particularly core inflation, excluding energy particularly. It, it appears nailed on that another quarter percent will be delivered in July and there's a possibility of another quarter percent at the next meeting in September. Of course, it's impossible to predict what a central bank is going to do, but that's where the balance of risk lies at this point. So for depositors out there, uh, the story is going to get somewhat better. For borrowers, be it um, you know variable or tracker rate mortgage people or businesses who are not into fixed rate contracts, uh, the news is just going to get worse before it gets better. I remain convinced that the ECB is determined to keep raising interest rates until just about the point that they should have stopped has been burst through. So I think that they, they are, I still think they're going to overdo it. I have a suspicion the Bank of England is going to overdo it as well, but for slightly different reasons. We, as you say, we got UK inflation out today, horrible numbers, really horrible numbers. The headline rate of inflation is stuck at 8.7%. For comparison, and you'll tell me what the Irish number is in a minute, but the French number is six, the German number is 6.3. The US number, and this is really, I suppose, speaks to that point you made about the, the Fed pausing last week. So UK is 8.7%. The comparable US number is currently 2.7%. So an extraordinary range of numbers. The US is doing best of all. The Fed comes in for a lot of stick but it is actually the central bank of the, of the majors that seems to be doing the best job. The ECB is sitting there in the middle. And the people that are doing the worst job, of course, is the Bank of England. And poor old Andrew Bailey is getting it in the neck, the governor of the Bank of England, on a daily basis. You mentioned food inflation. That clearly gets all of the headlines at 18.3%. It was up nearly 1% on the month. So that's showing few signs of slowing down. Core services inflation went up from 6.8% to 7.1%. That's something that... Uh, uh, sorry, did I say core services? Core, core inflation, so inflation include, excluding food and energy, core services or service sector inflation was at the highest in 30 years. So we've got generalized inflation going on in the UK. And I'll go back to my earlier remarks is that whenever anybody stands up and says, well, I know why we've got this problem, start picking up pinches of salt and throwing it at them along with other blunt, blunter and shoal, maybe heavier objects. Because we've got this as a profession, We've got this inflation story wrong globally, not just in the UK. In the UK, they've got it really, really wrong for all sorts of imperfectly understood reasons. But all of that stuff debate that we had a couple of years ago about being is inflation transitory or not, all the central banks got it wrong. Most of the economic profession got it wrong. Bank of England is actually going to have its models of inflation audited. God love those auditors. I'm not sure... I'd, love to, I'd like to take that task on because I probably would charge them a six-figure sum for doing so and cover it in econometric jargon and have lots of you know Fourier transforms of the autocorrelation function, the same thing as the spectral density function, garbage going on. 
conclude that we have a very imperfect understanding of the inflationary process. Because inflation could be caused by any one of a number of things. And perhaps it's always caused by something different every time. But there is no one single inflation-generating process. It isn't, as Milton Friedman said, always and everywhere a monetary phenomena. There's lots of things that could be going on. In the UK, of course, people like me would like to blame Brexit for part of the UK's inflation problem because people aren't exporting because they can't be bothered to ask to uh, fill in the forms anymore. So a lot of continental EU-based exporters aren't bothering to send particularly food, fresh foodstuffs to the UK anymore. Um, so the price of food as, is, is partly as a result of Brexit. But um, now we look as like interest rates are going to go up. Uh, by the time this podcast is out, they'll probably have gone up or be going up as, as, as we as we publish, but the speculation is that they will have to go half a percentage point this week, and by the end of the year, they will be up at 6%, a lot higher than yours. And as you rightly say, we had um, Ben asking us to mention, it isn't just about mortgages, it's about the wider economy and everybody else that uses these interest rates, be there for investment decisions, borrowing for other reasons than mortgages, uh, cost of capital calculations, which are very important in corporate finance, all these different things are affected by these high interest rates. There are lots of uh, suggested reasons as to why we have this inflation problem in the UK. You know, we've gone through them. But I think the substantive point I was making earlier on about Ireland and the central bank being precise to decimal points about if you spend this much on government spending, you will get this percentage point uh, increase or decrease in inflation treat these things with a pinch of salt because our understanding is so imperfect. We think it's got a little bit to do with Brexit. It's got an awful lot to do with the fact that the UK economy simply seems unable to generate any productivity growth. Productivity is probably the most important economic variable out there, and the UK just simply doesn't have any. So if the UK was to suddenly experience a surge of, say, consumer spending, not based on you know underlying productivity growth in the economy, the Bank of England would have to kill it. So I'm wondering just how low the underlying rate of growth in the British economy actually is at the moment. And it certainly seems to me now that they're in a terrible, terrible mess, that the uh, the underlying rate of productivity growth in the economy, because we haven't invested in, in Britain for years and years and years, we haven't done all the sorts of things that you need to do to generate productivity growth, is, is now so low that the Bank of England is going to have to keep interest rates high enough to prevent any economic growth. What we've had for 15 years in the UK will happen for as far as the eye can see, which is no substantive economic growth until they solve the productivity problem. Now, you can't solve productivity problems overnight if you can solve them at all. It is a long-term project. Sunak seems to be betting that uh, AI is going to solve the problem, and it may well do. The UK is a great destination for, for tech investing after all, but this can only happen um, in the in the years ahead. But Sunak's promise to halve inflation by the end of the year, which looked a bang on certainty when he made it a few months ago, now looks in, in jeopardy because of this big inflation surprise that nobody saw coming. So Sunak's own model for the economy needs an audit. The Bank of England's model for the economy is, uh, is being audited, and they are in a lot of trouble. The one thing, I, I will finish this little rant now by saying the one thing that puzzles me in a way is the behaviour of the pound, sterling. I would have thought that the pound would be very, very weak on the back of this trouble that they're in. The pound isn't. It's riding at multi-year highs at the moment, particularly against the US dollar. That's partly a dollar story as well. But anyway, I do think the pound is, is in for trouble 
uh, eventually, sooner or later, and this is not an investment recommendation, of course, but the pound will be in trouble sooner or later when the Bank of England overdo it, put interest rates up too much and cause, uh, if they cause a bad recession in the UK, because the economy that I think is at most risk of being overcooked by interest rate rises is the UK's. And that is that link back to the mortgage market, which I've written about a little while ago on our Substack site. I've, we've done podcasts on the mortgage bomb that's about to go off via the fixed rate thing that I won't go into again because we've talked about it so much. But they are, the housing market could be in a lot of trouble. Could I stress could be. Um, it depends on what the Bank of England does. But I think there's a lot of trouble already baked in. And that could cause a UK recession, certainly a housing problem. And that's when interest rates will start to be cut. And if, if that happens, that's the environment in which sterling will go down. It's gone up because everybody is expecting interest rates to go up now. And um, you can get nearly 5% now on 10-year gilts, um, nearly, not quite. And that's quite something. I think UK government bond yields are now higher than Greece's I, in some cases, Jim, which is, if you think about it, is an extraordinary thing. It is. I think higher than Italy's probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris, can I just read a quote here from um, an OECD country report this morning um, that the biggest challenge facing this country at the moment is reining in inflation without causing a recession. Um, It highlights weak investment and tepid productivity growth as a significant problem for this economy and that reforms are needed immediately to improve the business climate. Okay, that is an OECD report on the Canadian economy. And this productivity problem you describe in the UK, it ain't unique to the UK, is it? No, but it's particularly bad in the UK. And there are other aspects of the UK labour market that um, are very tight, just as as with productivity. Tightness of labour markets is also common to all countries, but the UK seems to have particular tightness for a number of factors. One is the sheer number of people we've got on the long-term sick here. Uh, the, the numbers are jaw-dropping for the number of people who are not working because they are too too sick to work. Genuinely, genuinely too sick to work, I stress. I'm not trying to say any, anything about other than um, we have a very sick workforce relative to other countries, and we're not quite sure why, we're not at all sure why that should be the case. We don't have a particularly older workforce or uh, any other reason that might be causing this this long-term illness. One of the suspicions is, is that, and it's only a suspicion, is that the state of the NHS is now so bad that people aren't getting the treatments that they need to cure their illnesses and that that is contributing to this huge number of people that are not working that, because of illness and therefore contributing to the extreme tightness of the UK labour market. I think the unemployment rate here is the same as it is in Ireland. And think about that, Jim. You've got full employment and a tight labour market, and you kind of understand that because you've had a red-hot economy for years. We've got the same unemployment rate as you've got. We've got a tighter labour market than you've got, and we've had not a red-hot economy for 15 years. We've had a very mere economy for 15 years. So very, very different experience, but ending up in the same place. And if anything, the UK, because of these peculiarities that we have here, um, with the, as I say, the sickness, the overlay of Brexit. There's other things, that, the, the way in which the pandemic was handled here, the way in which energy subsidies were handled here has all been different to other economies, which has contributed to the problem. So I do think that uh, it, 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 it is a mess. 
and the hole in which we that we have dug for ourselves is is getting deeper rather than um, unfortunately going the other way. Uh, Chris, I think we'll call it there. Uh, great to talk again after a break and uh, look forward to the next one. Cheers, Jim. Do another one soon. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 